but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, my name is Jonathan. And I'm James. And for the 150th time, welcome to the Body Serve. Wow. We've been out here for four years. It's taken us four years to get here, but we're still doing it after 150 episodes. You have it, you have it here listed as, or what, or, or sesquicentennial? Sesquicentennial. Sesqui. Uh-huh. Mm, or sesquicentennial. It's Latin. Oh. Mm. Learn something new every day. <laughs> And you learn things that you didn't even know you wanted to learn every day. Mm -hmm. This is something that I'm sure I've said on the podcast before, that I am a long-suffering recipient of the Did You Knows, mm -hmm. of your Did You Knows. Like, literally, we cannot get through watching anything without getting at least three Did You Knows. And so, what is it? A couple nights ago, we were watching Call the Midwife. Yes. And you interrupted... To tell me a little tidbit about Roma, a film that we just recently saw on Netflix that we both really enjoyed. And I sat there bewildered as you said to me, did you know that Yalitza didn't want to be in the same room as the guy while he was naked performing his martial arts routine and that they shot those scenes separately? And I just sat there and I stared at you because it had to have been one of the few things in our 12-year relationship that I told you and you didn't know. <laughs> and you had the gall a week later to then present it to me as fresh news. Well, in my defense, there's just so much that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know y'all are probably tempted out there to be like, wow, that is so cool that you have somebody who just gifts you knowledge every day are they do you think that's where people like are defaulting really oppressive i have to tell you but i i read a lot and i <laughs> gather a lot of trivial knowledge some of which is interesting uh, I, I only share the stuff that i think is interesting i think that's the problem <laughs> i think your gauge of what's interesting is a bit askew and the problem is it's not that i don't read mm -hmm. we end up reading the same things how many times were like on Twitter and we read the same thing at the same time. Yes. I think maybe you just need to be a little more intellectually curious. That's my opinion. Mm. You're entitled to that mm -hmm. opinion. But we're here to celebrate 150 episodes of The Body Surf. You just shifted the tone because I was going somewhere real negative and you're yeah. going positive. I was about to say everybody's entitled to an opinion like Martina Navratilova. Oh. Oh, oh. <laughs> and you just kind of, you know, intuitively steered the ship in a different direction. Mm -hmm. See, I sensed it coming. Mm. We'll get to that later on in the show. But we're a couple weeks behind on the tennis news. Two full weeks of tournaments yeah. to catch up on. You know, February will will do that to you. Mm -hmm. The weather's been crappy here. The tennis has been all over the world. There have been, what, like 10, 11 tournaments over the past two weeks. A lot of cool stuff did happen, though. Mm -hmm. Jem's life is working real well for Gael Mofis. Mm -hmm. Not not quite as well for Svitolina so far. I mean, it's working fine enough. Mm -hmm. What a semi in, in Dubai, 
where she was two-time defending champion. It's not like she's out here, you know, having terrible results. Right. And she did lose to the eventual champion, who beat four members of the top ten in Dubai. Not a shameful result at all. You mentioned Monfils. What is up with Gael? He won a tournament. <laughs> like, out of nowhere. A 500 tournament. He is renewed. He's playing with vigor. He's showing a kind of caring on court that folks have often really wanted to see from him. And it's something that we've always pushed back against because, you know, the carefree nature of Mofis is what makes Mofis Mofis. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you don't get this good without practicing yeah. and, and really caring about what you do for a living. Yeah. Even if he looks sometimes lackadaisical or theatrical on court. But maybe to project onto him as I sit here feeling the days and the weeks and the years of my life, you know, escape me. <laughs> Perhaps he too feels the same way about his career. And that, uh-huh. you know, after being injured for quite a while and slipping down the rankings, that he's he's here renewed to make a, a different attempt at his career. Mm-hmm. Rotterdam saw Stan Wawrinka get to a final in a 500 event. He beat... Kane Shikori in the semifinals played an exciting match against Gael Monfils. Stan could be back-back. Well, he's back-back when he beats top players. I think that's mm. always been the, mm. the test of, of where Stan is. If, if he truly is to be feared in best of five in a Grand Slam, yeah. that's when you know that, wow, you, know, you, don't want to, you don't want him anywhere near you in that draw. Joe Songa made another quarterfinal, losing to Medvedev who went on to lose to Monfils in the semifinals. Beating Medvedev in a hardcore event is a boon for anyone these days. So for Monfils to do that and then to beat Stan in the final, it's no small feat. It was impressive. It was an impressive week. And Songa backing up his title with a quarterfinal in his next event, is it's solid. It's solid work mm-hmm. from these two legends of modern-day French tennis. Absolutely. What was that? <laughs> Well, you know I think that. I thought you were poking a little fun at me. No, I was being entirely serious. Okay. Elsewhere, at the New York Open, this lovely tournament. Wow. This thing, the New York Open has a cloud hanging over it. Have you all ever been to Long Island in February? Like, it's it's not great. I think, what was it? Uh, Chad CC Smooth 13 asked us privately if if we thought it was worth it for him to make the Mm. trip. To Long Island for that tournament, inquiring about the weather, and we, oh, were, we were both like, "Well, to be frank, we can't in all good conscience." <laughs> right. If you recall the New York Open, it used to be the Memphis event, the one where Kane Ishikori won all those guitars. Yes. Last year was the first, the the inaugural event won by Kevin Anderson. Correct. Mm-hmm. It was marred by that ugly incident between Donald Young and Ryan Harrison. Which uh, there was a mild reprise of this week, which M- we'll mention mild? later. <laughs> <laughs> now, with these, these American tournaments, these American ATP tournaments, you're just kind of wishing that you can get through to the end without one of the MAGA folks lighting it up, right? I mean, they're... Well, well, we're wishing, but the tournament organizers might be wishing the opposite. That are those they, guys do get to the Are end. they? Because there was nobody at the at the New York Open this mm. year. And they mm. were... That tournament had everybody. Like I, it's, it's just a sad state of affairs. 
that event. Maybe that's my own personal bias. <laughs> we want the event to succeed. I think it is what's getting missed in here. It's cool to have an event in the winter in New York. Mm-hmm. I think it can be exciting. And the more events on American soil, given how many have left yeah. American soil yeah. over the last two decades, it's we want to see that succeed. Mm-hmm. We just got news that the Connecticut Open is gone. That's another one yeah. that's off the tennis mat. A WTA mat. tournament. Leading into this tournament, John Isner poses up on Twitter, shares a pic of him in studio with Sean Hannity, talking about, oh my God, this is so cool, guys. I mean, credit John Isner for just reminding you who he is at every turn. Like, there's no mystery with him. This is what the guy believes, who he wants to be surrounded by. Gimmelstab was back in John Isner's box this mm-hmm. week. Like, there's, there's no mystery. And to the folks, I've had a lot of folks respond to some of my tweets about Isner and the American men or whatever. And a lot of times it's like, oh, well, what, what did Isner do? What, what do we know about Isner? Mm. And at this point, I'm like, it's not really in my bag right now to give you that education. <laughs> it's I just... It, sound, like, it sounds arrogant to say it's not incumbent on me to, to like share all these details, but we've done it a lot. You know, like it's out there if you want it. You can search using Twitter. You can even Google it. Like it, it's everywhere. You could right? even quite easily parse through our podcast. <laughs> if if you feel so inclined. If you do. I'm just saying. You don't have to. This is not ground that okay. hasn't been covered. It's not you now going back to try and find Tennis Sandgren's tweets. That's not what this is. <laughs> It's it's just like it is this is Trump world. It's 2019. I'm so done with well, he just believes something different and we have to respect that. We don't have to respect people who believe children should be in prison. That, and the fact that, that babies should represent themselves in immigration court. Yeah. Like I don't have to respect that. That's pure evil. And the pushback you'll get is he didn't say that. Oh. Oh really? But Sean Hannity is no, I understand that. I'm on the same page. Mm. I am not willing to go through those steps to like make those connections because it's either you're genuinely missing those connections or you're trying to bait me into a whataboutism mm-hmm. online. It's fruitless because you're right. I'm I'm I am who I am and where I am at this point and that type of dialogue is not something I'm willing to engage in. Mm. That was a tangent. It's in bad faith. Yes. Right. Most people who are suggesting that are not being sincere Mm -hmm. or open-hearted. But the good news is that John Isner lost. And we got a a good (laughs) final. Yes. And we got some promising stories, some some fun stories, some new non-bullshit infused into the men's tennis. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very roundabout way of putting it. Uh Uh-huh. Riley Opelka beat John Isner for the second time in about a month. Beat him at the Australian Open as well. Is uh, slightly taller. One of the only players who's taller than John Isner. It was an ace fest. Not many breaks of serve in that match. It was, but Riley moves better than John. He does. Which for a seven-footer is saying something. Mm -hmm. They've played played seven sets this year. All seven have been tie breaks. And Riley has won five of those seven. Mm. And let me tell you, there are fewer things in this life that give me more pleasure than John Isner losing tiebreaks. 
it is just so good. <laughs> anyway, uh, a Canadian, Braden Schnorr, made the final. He was a qualifier in the tournament, losing to Opelka. Canadian tennis is just here. They are out here. Andreescu at the start of the year. Dennis the last two years. And now, Mr. Felix Auger-Eliassime. We'll get to him. He just made the final of the tournament in Rio. At the women's event in Doha, Elise Mertens takes out Simona Halep, who was trying out a new coach. They have decided to part ways. It was all very mature sounding. That little, (laughs) the talk from both Halep and the coach saying, well, you know, we tried and we're just not for each other. Mm -hmm. It was very well coordinated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a trial period. It wasn't, it wasn't like a split, right? It just, it just didn't work. Uh, but not all coaching player splits are that well curated, I would say. Well, we've just lived through <laughs> some. So <laughs> The Venus Williams uh, firing her team was a not well curated, I would argue. <laughs> it was done on her terms. <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> Diego Schwartzman gets to the final at home in Buenos Aires and loses to Marco Cecchinato, who is defending big points in Roland Garros this year and is uh, well on his way to at least holding on to some of those points if he doesn't defend them at the French Open. Cecchinato, is it wrong of me to remind folks that he was the one who was wrapped up in some stuff? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not wrong because then you'll get people accusing us of not talking about it, Mm -hmm. you know. He had his match-fixing scandal back in the day. That's two weeks ago, those results. The, The big news is that Belinda Bencic had one of these legendary runs that she can go on. Because she, she did it before. She has done it before. In Toronto. Here, there were fireworks and everything. Drake was there. <laughs> Serena was trying to get a calendar year Grand Slam at the time. It was high drama here in Toronto. But this year in Dubai, Belinda Bencic just found her game and slayed everybody. She beat four... Top 10 seeds, Sabalenka, Halep, Svitolina, and Petra Kvitova. Again, Kvitova is in another final on hard courts. She's having an amazing start to the year. Continuing from last year. Right. I, I will take issue with your characterization of that because I wouldn't say that she slayed the field. She saved match points, multiple match right. points early in the tournament, and it was a struggle. It was a lot of three-set matches, a lot of tight, contested matches. But she was able to fight through all of them. It was more grit than slayage, in my Mm -hmm. my opinion. She's not the kind of player that dominates her opponents, right? Like, she's wily. She takes the ball early. She's clever out there. She's not going to blow you away like that dragon gif. We often say when Petra is Petra, she's like the dragons just blowing down the field. Mm-hmm. With Belinda in this instant, it's more like, you know, she's starting little fires that you have to tiptoe and like, ooh, burn your feet a little bit. And then at the end, you're not really well equipped to deal with the knockout punch. Mm -hmm. So Tamani Cariol tweeted something about Belinda that actually made me cackle, but made a lot of sense. He said most of the, the top 10 players in the past few years have been either strong or quick. Belinda is neither. It's like, oh, damn. Because it sounds like a read, right? yeah. but, but it's actually not. Be- considering 
the deficiencies mm-hmm. if those are if those are the qualities that you're looking for in a top women's tennis player she doesn't really have them in spades so considering that she has immense talent and uh the skill to kind of i don't know i don't want to say like think through matches but be able to dictate in a kind of unassuming way well part of her strength is that she's able to to change direction on the ball and take the ball earlier than most women that then puts pressure on your opponent in ways that more speed could Mm. that more power could so that's her way to mitigate her lack of power and speed per se right the thing about belinda that's always confused me is that we see historically with somebody like justine enna or camilla georgie these lighter framed more wiry looking women on tour being able to generate all this power whereas belinda has the frame you would think to be able to Mm. generate a lot of power and she doesn't right I always feel like Belinda should be hitting the ball with more power. But as Steve Tinier wrote in his wrap-up of last week, he made the comparison of Belinda to Martina Hingis in that she's able to take the ball early. That, that's really something that, that sets her apart mm-hmm. in spite of those deficiencies. But man, that, that week was no joke. Like it's, <laughs> it was incredible. Four top ten players and then to beat Petra in the final... Hats off to her, and especially given where she's coming from. We spoke on this podcast back in 2015, I know I did, that when she hit the top 10 for the first time, that I didn't expect her to leave the top 10 for the next however many years. Kind of like a next Radvanska. Uh Because while she did have some deficiencies, she didn't have any glaring holes. Like Her game was built to be a top 10 player perennially. And unfortunately for her, she suffered a debilitating injury that, that's made it very difficult for her to reach these heights again. Mm-hmm. And she said this past week that in a way, it, it makes sense that it took her so long to get back to the top because otherwise, what would it be saying about the, the level of women's tennis? That you could just come back after all this time out and then just, whoops, here I am, top 10 again. Mm. You know, like this is the reality of the women's tour. What Serena Williams has done in getting back to the top 10 in playing, what, six or seven tournaments, that is not normal. Right, because she is not normal. Exactly. What you want, I mean, you can say whatever you want to say about Maria Sharapova, and that a lot of it, in terms of her current ranking and lack of success in coming back, has to do with injury, but that too shows you how difficult it is to do. Mm -hmm. Because part of those injuries is due, I'm assuming, to the rigor of playing these tournaments against this competition. Right. It's just not easy. Because everywhere you turn, there's a Sasnovich, there's a Sabalenka, a Sevastova ready to don you. There's a ben- like, there's a Benchich. Exactly. But every week there's the potential in the WTA for this kind of storyline. And it's not a one hit wonder. It's not a fairy tale run. It's something that makes perfect sense because these women are that good. Mm-hmm. In you mentioned Toronto in 2015, she actually beat four of the top five seeds at that tournament, which mathematically is even hard to get them all on the same side of the draw. <laughs> she beat Serena, obviously, Simona Halep, Caroline Wozniacki, and Anna Ivanovich. Can we talk about from? Well, it will call to mind Benches beating Venus at the Australian Open, but the thing from that match that I will take with me for the rest of my life 
is the commentator calling her Belinda Banchich. <laughs> the Australian commentators, for some reason, cannot say Benchich. They call her Banchich. Where does that come from? I Can don't any know. of our Australian listeners give us an insight? Daydreamer Oz, please tell us. <laughs> Frith, if you're out there listening. Anyone. Our favorite Quebecer, Felix Auger. How dare you? On Jeannie's birthday, you're going to say that. <laughs> On Jeannie's birthday. Is it really birthday, her birthday? It was either today or yesterday. You're such a liar. <laughs> Felix <laughs> made his first final, his first semifinal, his first quarterfinal on the mm. ATP main tour. Lots of firsts in a week. The, it's hard to believe the kid is still only 18 he's, because it feels like people have been talking about he's the next big thing. He's going to be the most talented of the next gen. Like these conversations have been going on for years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are some of those people. Yes, but he is only 18. 18.5, according to the mm-hmm. live rankings. He clearly has a lot of growing left to do. He's tall, but wiry. he is very wiry. He will put on muscle, like someone like Sasha Zverev, is trying desperately to put on muscle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I can only hope that Felix is able to overcome his heart issue that we saw mm-hmm. in play at the U.S. Open last year. Because his talent is so undeniable. And I'm so not want to stand new people. But Felix is right there for me. Mm. I'm so ready to stand Felix. Like, we've kept Dennis at an arm's length for the entirety of our <laughs> acquaintance with him, right? <laughs> but Felix is just, he is to be Stan. And his game is so classic. Mm-hmm. The lines that he draws on the court, the fluidity of his movement. Ah, it's its crazy to me that he's able to, to achieve this now. And in his to his benefit, Rio has played on clay. And we've seen that Felix is very adept when it comes to clay court tennis. He won, he's won back-to-back challengers in 2017 and 2018 at the same event on clay. And now he's made his first ATP final, ATP 500, on clay in Rio. Granted, the draw kind of fell the fuck apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, he did beat one of the top four seeds in the first round, Fabio yeah. Fognini. Like, what was it, like all of the top 10 seeds were out by the second round. It was it was a massacre mm-hmm. in Rio. And this great stat from Hurley Tennis, he pointed out that the four semifinalists are actually the ones who beat the top four seeds in the first round. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen? Yeah, how Ever? often are we out here bitching and complaining that, oh, you beat my favorite, and then, oh, look, you went and lost to, like, number 200 the next day. <laughs> and the champion, Laszlo Jair, beat the number one seed Dominic team in the first round. Mm-hmm. It it feels very fitting, very symmetrical. It was a cute event, just like how the Long Island Open, that's what I'm going to call it, had a cute result, despite <laughs> everything that came before, right? Mm-hmm. You have people at the end, uncharacteristic finalists, who are staking a claim for their careers, be it youngins on the come up or journey folk, people who have been out here struggling for a while, mm who are putting their hand up and, you know. Braden Schnur made it all the way from qualifying in New York to the final. There were folks, I remember watching my Twitter feed before the tournament even started, and Braden Schnur was retweeted onto my timeline where somebody was saying, well, this dude is not long for this tournament. He's barely even going to get out of qualifying because I saw him and he is suffering from a wicked cold. Mm. And Braden was like, hmm, really? And there he is in the final. 
Laszlo Jair is a 23-year-old Serb who kind of made his name this week because of what he's been through. Gave a, a very moving speech at the end of the Rio Trophy ceremony, talking about how you know he's lost both his parents to cancer, his father quite recently within the last year, and uh, he dedicated the title to them and hoped that he could make them proud. It was just very sad and very special moment. Whenever something like this happens, I am drawn to this player emotionally, obviously. But I'm also thinking, you know, I'm so happy that this person is going to get this check. Mm -hmm. Because so much of their career must have been such a struggle from a financial point of view. And then you add in the emotional turmoil. And at least now, perhaps, they won't have to worry about all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere this week... Stefanos Tsitsipas won his second career title in Marseille, beating Kukushkin. Delray Beach had a very surprising finalist. Oh, that's all you're going to say in... about Tsitsipas? But <laughs> what else do I, I have just want to say? I want to come back to it. We'll come back to it later on. Tsitsipas out here causing all kind of drama with this Naomi DM <laughs> thing, right? He said he's taking a, a little break from social media. It's too much. Or he's having some added security features added to his social media <laughs> so that it's no longer, so it can't be hacked yeah. again. Or his agent is telling him, you need to get off this for a little while. Oh my god. Uh, that was so wild. <laughs> <laughs> so wild. Anyway, down in Delray Beach, Florida, Francis Tiafo was the defending champ. Did not fare well there, losing in, the first, in his first match. The finalist, Radu Albot and Dan Evans... We have to start taking Dan Evans seriously again. It's no joke. Yes, but then do we actually have to pay him any mind? You don't have to, but he is out here and he is getting results. Mm -hmm. Uh, Albot is the first Moldovan to win an ATP title. Dan Evans, if you recall, was banned from tennis for snorting cocaine. Mm -mm. No, not snorting it, for having trace amounts in his pocket. You have to be accurate. There was no Pamela in that situation. No, there was no Pamela. No Carmen. Who is that? A Camille. <laughs> <laughs> He's British, so uh, I don't know. Enid. Uh, and Gem- Enid. And Gemma? Agnes. Gemma. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no Karen from finance. <laughs> Elsewhere in Budapest, Alison van Eitvank, she defended her title, this time beating Vondrasova, and uh, yay for lesbians on the WTA tour. That just about brings us to the end of our recap of the tennis. Uh, it's, it's not always our bag, you know, going through the results. What we're going to do now is get into a little bit more of etc. stuff. Stuff that are more big picture, macro, more along the lines of the body serve aesthetic and ethos. Miss mm. Maria Sharapova. She has withdrawn from Indian Wells. This is now old news at the time when this was added to the agenda. We were still two and a half weeks out from the start of the event. And we were, we're saying to ourselves, well, wow, this can't be that great if two and a half weeks out, she's already pulling out from this event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have nothing to add. Clearly, she knows her body at this stage in her career, and she can't play to the best of her ability. This is a, it's, it's a recurring thing for her now with the, the injuries. Because we see her show up and have one or two really solid crazy good wins Mm. and then in the next round she's unable to compete or she has to withdraw from the event the next round like the body just isn't able to hold up anyway more importantly joe wilfried songa announced this week or last week that he was skipping indian wells 
and he just dropped in that he suffers from sickle cell disease, which, uh, based on the translation, it sounds actually more that he is dealing with what's called sickle cell trait, which means he has... I know you went and did some research I about did. this. Because it has to do with your boy, Joe Sanga. So I'm not a us. scientist, but let's say... You know when you did those those little squares, what were those called? Where like you could d- determine if a gene was dominant or recessive, if the offspring would inherit that gene, no. and if it would be... Biology was not my bag. Oh, you went to a Catholic school too. Did they just teach you about, you know, creation? Let's not be racist here. <laughs> that is not racist. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you said Catholic, but we're talking about going to Jamaican school here. Okay, okay. Not just Jesuit. Okay. The point is there is a difference between sickle cell disease, which can cause sickle cell anemia, and sickle cell trait. So it appears what Joe is dealing with is sickle cell trait. It can affect circulation. It can cause your body to produce a mixture of normal hemoglobin and abnormal hemoglobin. The abnormal is what causes the cells to turn into the red blood cells to turn into like like this crescent shape, what they call sickle cells. And that can block blood vessels. It can cause pain, fatigue, shortness of breath, you know. So the fortunately the symptoms of sickle cell trait are rare relative to people who suffer from the disease. But it seems like what Songa is suffering from is aggravated by flying, altitude, pressurized cabins apparently can contribute to this. He said that when he flies, he needs a good three to five days to recover and feel like normal. So in the first few days that he lands somewhere, he's not training like Mm. at all. So if he had flown all the way to California, he'd need all this time. He said sometimes it feels like he's having flu symptoms, crazy fatigue, like it can cause joint issues. As far as I know, he had never been public about this before. I'm told he had mentioned it in Australia this year. Okay. But it could have been with French press, and that's Mm -hmm. why we didn't get much play about it. And and what we learned this time around was through French press again. Yes, which makes it all the more difficult figuring out which sort of which type of sickle cell syndrome he is talking about. For us who are unwashed when it comes to the French language. Or genetic disorders in general. Yeah. But after we learned that, he went and made the quarters in Rotterdam. You know, I I don't see this as a gloom and doom kind of thing. Right. He's learning to manage his body better in his, you know, twilight years on the ATP tour. Mm -hmm. And uh, good for him. I mean sad for him as well <laughs> yeah it it actually gives some insight into why he may have said that he was sort of counting the months at, at some points he was thinking how how much longer can i do this we've talked about it on the show uh, wondering why he was being so pessimistic and this might be part of it when he wasn't playing well that could have been contributing to his mindset it makes training all the more difficult and traveling especially and this in a week when Caroline Wozniacki had to pull out of tournaments because her immunity is lower because of her condition, because of her autoimmune disease. It sucks. It's just really unfortunate to see this happen to top-tier athletes. So let's get into this Osaka Sitsipa situation because it was so bizarre. <laughs> and I, uh, what is the lesson learned here? Don't fuck with fuckboys? I don't understand. Uh, I don't DM with anyone. (laughs) Like, you think you're safe. (laughs) So it started 
when Naomi, she pre-tweeted the, this main tweet. Pre, what does that mean? Let me explain. She tweeted something that's saying, guys, I have this tweet that I've been thinking about, but I don't know if I oh. should do it. I'm kind of nervous to at this person. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. the response is going to be do it. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> like, we're out here needing something to get through our day. It's February, damn it. We're snowed in. And so she dot at Steph Tsitsipas, walking on court for a Grand Slam final with this in his mouth so he could have some good quality footage for his vlog. And it's a picture of this dude with like a mouth camera. Mm. It looks like some snorkeling equipment that's in his mouth and it's attached to, a camera's attached to it. Yeah. Presumably, you know, he's going to be filming underwater. Mouth vlogging. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. Right. (laughs) So the joke here is that Steph is always vlogging. It's Mm. his thing. And you have to be kind of good natured about the ribbing. Yeah, you have the newly minted world number one, one of the biggest stars in tennis right now, mm. atting you. Yeah, you you would be happy got, she's even talking to you. She she thought about you. That should have been <laughs> enough for you. You know, it should have been more than enough. And so she's saying like, this is Steph walking on court for a Grand Slam final. His response of all the responses that he could have chosen from his bag. When did I get to play a Grand Slam final? <laughs> I thought it was no. I thought it was cute. You did. I'm reading it differently. I thought their their interaction was awkwardly cute, uh, good natured. Mm. Read like that. Both of them are awkward. They're weird. We know this. Yeah, I don't. I don't get in what way is his response cute or like, like awkward. Ha ha! You have already won two grand slams, and I have none. Ha ha ha! No, I definitely did not get that. Really. At all. I thought it was just like being totally humorless. No, I don't. I think you have to approach Stephanos's tweeting with the understanding that he is weird and and he might approach social situations differently than than us. So it goes on. Naomi says, "Well, Mr. Tsitsipas, sometimes you got to speak it into existence. You don't have to thank me. You're welcome." And he goes, "Mr, I'm trying to remember the last time someone called me like this, a chair umpire?" That's why I like this platform so much. In all caps, freedom of expression. <laughs> and then he says, buy players Grand Slam final camera gear here. And he's linking to all these Go, GoPro stuff. So, I mean, he did recover. In my mind, mm-hmm. I read it negatively at first, but he did recover. However, <laughs> where this train really goes careening off train tracks mm-hmm. is, take it away. What? <laughs> He posted on his photography Instagram. He has two Instagrams. The uh, Steve Hawk, I think it's called Steve Hawk Tennis. That's his photography account on Instagram. He <laughs> to, he posted all these DMs that were clearly between himself and Naomi in a story. And he deleted them eventually, claimed that he had been hacked, that he would never do that. And some other tennis players recently have been hacked on Instagram, to be fair. Like, that's in his defense. But whoever did it has a pretty good understanding of Stefano's language. <laughs> like, the style. Because it it really appeared that he had typed that. Yeah. Like, the caption. So what we're saying is we're calling bullshit on him. Well, no. I'm saying I don't know. Because we cannot say for sure either way, I'm not going to, to make a... Proclamation? The proclamation that Stefanos leaked these DMs. If he did, bad form, obviously. If he didn't, tough break. 
uh, <laughs> hacking sucks. <laughs> you know? Regardless, the, I don't know. Is there... out here probably wondering what the fuck? Right. Like so, she had just said mm-hmm. that one of the reasons for her breakup with Sasha was, and we'll get to that after this, was people talking behind her back. Yeah. Regardless of whether it was a hack or not, Naomi will probably be very cautious when next talking to Stefanos. I would be. I mean, as far as shipping goes, it could have been a very shippable pair. <laughs> I'm not ship. I'm just not. I'm not a shipper. I'm not, I'm not a shipper, period. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't believe in shipping. Right. But Except for fictional characters, for me at least. <laughs> but, you know... It could have it could have gone somewhere and no it won't because of all of this. Wow. Thanks a lot, hacker. <laughs> Naomi talks the buying breakup. That's the next bit that we're getting into. Mm-hmm. Quotes from Reem Abulil, because not everybody cited where the quotes came no, from. They show didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about Twitter people, I'm talking about fellow journalists. Yeah, people who, who should impede know better. on other journalists' work. Mm-hmm. Reem printed uh <laughs> Some good stuff from Naomi. This young woman, uh, you called me out a few weeks ago because I I said that I found Naomi mysterious. Maybe I was wrong. I told you you were wrong in the moment (laughs) and you did not listen to me. Right. Did Uh, you know that you were wrong? Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. Man, Naomi just, uh, she just has to say what she feels sometimes. And she made it quite clear in a very non-confrontational way that this was personal. Mm Mm-hmm. That And that personal is wrapped up in professional for her. For some folks, the Naomi detractors, they will say she started off the, the, the interview by saying, yeah, I don't want to talk smack about Sasha. But then she went and like told the business. And in my mind, it's like, well, do you want to know what happened or not? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I don't understand. It's like, if you want the tea, are you then going to criticize the person who gave it to you? Like, are you biting the hand that fed you? And did and she Naomi, really say something no, that bad? No, she didn't. She wasn't messy because she is smart. And she framed it as in, this is what I'm looking for in a coach going forward. What we're reading into it is that her previous coach didn't fulfill those needs mm-hmm. for her. So what she's looking for is, you know, to have a positive mindset. Quote, I don't want someone that's in the box saying negative stuff. That would be the worst. Does that mean Sasha was that person? I don't know. I don't think that's what she's saying. Apparently there was an on-court situation in Brisbane or maybe sometime last year where Sasha kind of left the the coaching visit on court and was like, oh my God, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that wasn't great. I think no. it was in Brisbane this year before the Australian Open. Uh-huh. So she said it was kind of brewing in Australia, which would give credence to that. I think some people could see that if they saw how we interacted. I would not want to split on really bad terms, I think, because, of course, you were sort of the one that, like, made me open up more to people. I didn't want it to be really, like, a hostile thing. Mm -hmm. We talked a bit about, in the last episode, that Naomi is pretty self-possessed for a 21-year-old. It seems like she knows what she needs professionally, and I, I think she articulated this well, that whatever that relationship was was obviously fruitful in many ways, but it wasn't what she needed at this time. And what she needs is her own personal happiness, which to my mind, it it actually blows my mind that at 21 she's able to have this much Mm self-awareness. I'm I'm putting my own 
past on the table here and you all can think back to your own 20s and maybe even your own current lives in your 40s. Just how many relationships, personal, professional or whatever, have you hung on to months or years way too long out of a need for propriety, politeness, like a, a longing for what that relationship once was. Mm-hmm. You know, just going through the motions because like, I don't really want to have to deal with this right now. I imagine it could have been so easy for Naomi coming off the back of winning the US Open and the Australian Open to be like, you know, whatever, I can deal with this. Like, it's going so well, I might as well. Mm-hmm. But she's like, you know, no. <laughs> I'm, it's just, I'm not going to do that. And honestly, I wish I'd done that in my life for a lot of folks. Really? Yeah. Because I've known you for most of your 20s, and you never really seemed like you had trouble telling the truth. No, that's, you see, you're, you're, two things are at play for you here. Okay. Because you say that, but then you also tell me that, you know, I won't take shit from certain people, but people oh, with whom true. I've had a yeah. long extended relationship with, I will forgive and look past those things. Mm-hmm. So which is it, sir? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You get to your 30s and you find you have a lot more clarity in the way you view, view the world and mm. your, your life and your place within it. And it seems, and maybe that's heightened by the fact that she's an elite athlete and that the stakes are higher for her now as the world number one. Right. And, and so she's maybe able, maybe had to learn that quicker than most of us would have had to in our regular lives. But I still find it impressive that she's able to have that clarity to be able to put her own happiness first above all else. Mm. There was a lot of doom and gloom, a lot of hand-wringing when she lost in the first round of Dubai to Mladenovic. And my notes on that are really just, really? Who cares? Who cares? You know? Like, it's she has two majors in the back. It's Dubai. I don't mean to denigrate that tournament, the drug and disease-free tennis. <laughs> 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 the I'm so sorry. The, the Spidalina Open? The handle, DDF Tennis. Mm. All I see is drug and disease-free tennis. You uh, do you. No shade at the Dubai tournament, but... That was a lot of shade at the Dubai tournament. It, it, well, I can imagine that they are well-versed in English, Western, gay lingo. But that's what DDF means. <laughs> okay. No, no comment. Okay, that's... <laughs> My point in saying that is that while this is an important tournament, it's not uh, it's not the end all. The fact that she came to Dubai and didn't play her best and also ran into somebody who has recently improved their game quite a bit, it's not that big a deal. Has she has she improved her game? Serve. The serve. Anyway, <laughs> my point of view on this. How many times have we seen somebody struggle a little bit after getting to number one for the first time? And on top of that, compounding the issue is she's without a coach. She'd just gone through this big public breakup with Sasha. Tsitsipas, for whatever that's worth, had just put her <laughs> dirty laundry out in the open. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was probably a challenging week. And while Kiki has had a horrendous year and a half or year, she's not somebody without pedigree. Of course. She's had results. She's gone deep into tournaments, beaten a lot of folks. Mm. And this week, she put her money where her mouth always is. And if Naomi wants to take the Serena Williams journey of losing to no-name players at smaller tournaments, uh, I don't think that's going to kill her career. It's just not a big deal. (laughs) 
You won't know it, but we're back from a little break. I went and tended to the stew peas that's being cooked right now. It was a special mm. request from you. You're like, it was. Can you make me stew peas tonight? And I obliged. For listeners who don't know what stew peas is, can you describe? <laughs> can you describe? Sure. It's it's like a, a stew. It's a Jamaican dish made with pigtail peas. Red red kidney beans. Red kidney beans, which Jamaicans call peas. Yeah. Uh, stew beef, pimento, which is used to make allspice, served over rice. Well, Am I missing anything? I'm using stew beef, but it's really supposed to be salt beef. Oh, oh I like, see. Yeah, but, okay. you know, I'm improvising. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. And I don't really even eat the pigtail. No, don't tell don't. anyone. <laughs> but it flavors everything. The pigtail is the best part. Mm. Uh, we also came back from break with you <laughs> having a bit of a, a dialogue about the whole Robert Kraft situation. Did we... <laughs> yes, you did. And I have was, nothing to say about that publicly. It was quite colorful. My, my <laughs> you were like, really? It took him only 14 minutes from start to finish? It, it's not exactly 14 minutes. That was an exaggeration. The whole thing is gross. My mom and my sister are very big Patriots fans, so I am enjoying sending them tweets and updates about the news. Mm. It is an endless stream of fucker with that team. Mm-hmm. It really is. And let's, I mean, Robert Kraft is the least of this. Like, this is a huge issue with sex trafficking and exploitation. Yeah, it's not actually funny. No, it's not. But Tom Brady, take that MAGA hat out of your goddamn locker. On that note, maybe not the best segue. Well, if the shoe fits. Martina Navratilova. This isn't light, so I don't want to make jokes about this. To start, uh, disclaimer, Martina is somebody who I think both of us have admired for basically our entire adult lives what even before the very first tennis match i watched was martina's 1994 wimbledon finals loss to conchita martinez like she has been right there with my gay coming of age Mm. but to be clear we're coming from a place where martina navratilova occupies a pretty hallowed space in in our queer history in in our understanding of tennis in many people's coming of age. She's an ambassador for us. She's an ambassador for women's tennis, for sport writ large. She's somebody who has an incredible pulpit. And that she would have gone about this this way is incredibly disappointing. Mm-hmm. So we say that really to put in relief what has just happened and express how disappointing it is. It goes to show as well, and it's something we've talked about a lot and it comes from our own perspectives as gay men and or feelings and lived experiences with the proliferation of gay rights in the last decade. Like we've come a long way, baby, in the mm-hmm. last 10 years. But within that, trans rights have been kind of a subsect, a very small T in the LGBTQ. Mm. And it's highly controversial. Yes. And it's something that even, and we've talked about this, even queer folks, gay folks, don't understand. It's something that we've had to educate ourselves on a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a reason why we have been a lot more forgiving of straight people in particular when they, they step a, a foot wrong with trans issues, right? Because we see how we too <laughs> struggle. Right. And... and, and are not able to understand things as readily as we think we should. Right. So going into this forecoming discussion, the disclaimer is that we are not experts, we are not scientists, you know, 
I read Gender Trouble in grad school like a lot of people, but that doesn't make me uniquely qualified to talk about this. What we're doing is, even though we believe that the way that Martina framed this issue was offensive and crude, that doesn't mean that we can't take hold of these arguments and, and talk about them like adults, mm-hmm. right? Another bit of preamble and context. It's also why we personally have been so careful about what we say, not just about this issue, but about trans issues in general. Because while we f- well, we obviously have a pulpit of sorts with this podcast, but we are not quick to talk about things that we are not sure about. Nor do we think that because we are gay, that gives us license to talk about stuff. There's still a lot of interrogation and work that needs to be done to be able to get to a place to talk even remotely, not just comfortably, but astutely about these things. And just because you are queer does not make you an authority. Right. Which to me is one of the big problems with this essay. I don't think we even really talked about what we're discussing here. Martina Navratilova wrote an essay for the Times of London arguing that trans women athletes should not be allowed to compete alongside, as she calls them, biological female. When we're talking about biological female women, we're referring to XX, 46XX people. People with the supposedly correct number and type of chromosomes expressed as a biological female human. And this was her response to a, a casual tweet that she had issued at the end of last year, essentially saying that trans women should not compete mm-hmm. in professional sport. Right. So a little, a little bit of background. The International Olympic Committee has, in the past several years, ruled that trans women athletes can compete against women in the women's sporting events if they have tested under a certain threshold of testosterone for a year. So trans women who are undergoing hormone replacement therapy and reach this threshold, don't exceed it, can compete against women. There's no, they suspended their requirement for trans women to undergo gender confirmation surgery, to put it crudely, what some people call bottom surgery. Or as Martina did in that piece, do the deed. Do the deed. Or, you know, transsexual is kind of an antiquated term in many circles. Some people still use it. There's no judgment there. Uh, But what she refers to as transsexual people who have gone through all the surgery and become fully their new gender. And she made that distinction between transgender Mm -hmm. and transsexual. Yes, so the IOC has moved on from that because there is no compelling scientific evidence that that says that makes a big difference. Martina's position is that trans women possess an unfair advantage because of their many years growing up as male human beings, right? People mention the expanded rib cage, bone density. Oxygen levels. (laughs) Lung capacity because of the bigger rib cage. So her argument is that you can't, what she says, and I quote, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. There must be some standards and having a penis and competing as a woman would not fit that standard. She's quoting herself in a tweet that she made at the end of last year. She acknowledges that it may be a bit over the top, but to repeat it here, in my opinion, is vulgar, it's crass, there's no need to use that sort of language, and the idea, basically the concept, 
to proclaim yourself female, that that doesn't go away. Like that's a through line through this essay. That's what she tweeted at the end of last year, and she got all this pushback. And so she said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep quiet now. I'm gonna go away, do some research, and get back to you." And this is her getting back to us. And so she's setting this up with, "This is what I said then." And so now she goes on to say and doubles down, "Quote: A man can decide to be female, take hormones if required by whatever sporting organization is concerned, win everything in sight, and perhaps." earn a small fortune, and then reverse his decision and go back to making babies if he so, so desires. It's insane and it's cheating. I'm happy to address a transgender woman in whatever form she prefers, but I would not be happy to compete against her. It would not be fair. So Martina's coming from this place where she had a transgender woman as a coach. A competitor at one point, mm-hmm. and then her coach, Renee Richards. Right. Renee Richards transitioned in the 70s. She is now uh, living as a woman. She actually has sort of changed her position and said, perhaps it was unfair of me to compete against women. Just because Renee Richards feels that doesn't mean that that is what everyone should feel. That, That is her experience and obviously her right to feel that way. But for Martina to leverage that to argue that no trans women should compete against women is a, a bit unsavory in my opinion. And the language that she's using is listen, we can we can discuss this and it should be discussed. Like the subject should not be off limits, but the language that she's using is crude and it's repeating right-wing talking points that seek to limit trans people's rights. This and I don't know if I don't know if she grasps that. But it is. This business of stating that a man can decide to be female. Like people flip back and forth. Like, I'm, I'm going to be female for my early 20s. Well, in this instance, she's saying, well, for this person's 20s and early 30s, they'll be female because, mm-hmm. you know, I can use this to my advantage to earn a small fortune. And then, you know, I'll go back to doing whatever I feel like doing. Right. It's, it's so sinister and cynical. But this is the fear-mongering that you heard in 1977 when Renee Richards played the U.S. Open in the women's draw. It's the exact same language. We have come nowhere. The distinction that she's making and why she takes Renee Richards' side looking back is that Renee had the surgery. She did the deed. I don't understand uh, how that is the, the line in the sand for Martina. Okay, so let's go there. That, that's the next step in the argument. She makes a distinction between trans people who have not had gender confirmation surgery and trans people who have. The IOC has determined that there's no scientific evidence to say that one or the other gives an athletic advantage, but she is holding on. It's just not really clear that there's any difference. You know, when someone is on hormone replacement therapy, they take both synthetic estrogen and a testosterone blocker. Trans women who are on hormone replacement therapy actually have lower levels of testosterone than what you would refer to as biological women. And this is also not a pressing issue in terms of results. That's the thing, right? Like Historically, we have not had trans women blazing through sporting events and just snatching wigs everywhere. No, no. 
Back in the 70s, it was, well, what if Jimmy Connors decides to become a woman and compete against women? Right now, so that wasn't an issue then. It's not now. Someone like Castro Semenya, who is intersex, who has undergone untold humiliations and trauma because of what she looks like and how she competes, she has higher testosterone levels than trans women do. So Martina is a supporter of Castor, but not of trans women who are trying to compete within the rules. I mean, if they can't compete as women, what are they supposed to do? Mm -hmm. A lot of it is fear-mongering and passing our own ideas of what a woman should look like. Somebody who plays a prominent role in this whole story with Martina is Rachel McKinnon, who is a a cyclist, a, a trans woman cyclist. And when Martina made her first forays into this issue last year, at the end of last year, and tweeted about it, McKinnon and her had a back and forth, quite an extensive back and forth. So Martina brings her up again in this article. And with respect to McKinnon, Martina says she vigorously defended her right to compete, pointing out that when tested, her levels of testosterone, the male hormone, were well within the limits set by World Cycling's governing body. And she goes on to say, this is the real kicker here. Nevertheless, at six feet tall and weighing more than 14 stone, she appeared to have a substantial advantage in muscle mass over her rivals. And listen, like this is this is what Serena Williams has been dealing with her entire goddamn career. This is what it is. Mm. This is why people look at her and say, well, she's a man. Like there's something wrong with her. Her muscles are not natural. Her body's not natural. This is why her body has been contested her entire career because of what we think a woman should look like. And we should be at a point now where we, as a global society, as a global people, should understand that women come in many different shapes and sizes. I work with women who are well over six feet tall, who tower over me. I don't look at them and say, oh my God, like, are you sure you're not a man? It would be unfair if if they played. An article I read cited Brittany Griner, who was six foot eight. Yeah. And can dunk. Uh, is she? Of course, of course, she has an advantage over female athletes. How do you but go? The, <laughs> well, how do you go from saying that Rachel McKinnon she's tested well within the levels, but then the way she looks, other people are like, "Well, that's crazy. Mm. Something must be afoot." It is. Is as you say, it's fear mongering. It's fearing something that you don't know. And my hope is that we can use this as an an instructive moment to kind of push through all this bullshit and get to a place where it's okay to not feel like you have a full grasp of everything Mm, all the time. You don't have to be able to identify people and Mm -hmm. put them within boxes to make sense of things. And sometimes sitting in kind of muddledness, it's it's totally fine. Mm. Like the people who are being targeted and who have to suffer the brunt of this, those are the ones whose lives are inextricably affected. Right. That's that's the issue here, is that language and discourse has serious material effects for people's lives. Language has real effects in the real world. We know that. Like, that's something that we depart from. That's, that's a place that we, you and I, start from when we look at issues. Trans people are suffering at a disproportionate level from suicide, from homicide, from violence. Why why are we putting things out there that would re-inscribe that violence mm-hmm. to make it more likely? 
And so what was disappointing mostly, I think, about this for me is that, you know, you go away and you do the research and this is what you come up with. This is not rigorous. This, I Googled this for 10 minutes and came up with scholarly articles that refuted what she said. I, I just have to, I have to understand where is this research coming from? I don't, I just don't get it. What is clear is that there is currently no peer-reviewed data to either confirm or refute the idea that male-to-female trans athletes have an advantage over born female athletes. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry if that's not the right terminology. What I mean is people born with XX chromosomes. The the assumption that male-to-female athletes have an advantage in, in all these different physical characteristics is simply not supported by the science. I'm not saying that that is patently untrue. It's just that we don't know, that the science has not returned that conclusion. And to use it as if it's fact is, it's just anecdotal. And we are saying this as diehard supporters of women's sport. We want women's sports to flourish. It's a, one of the biggest passions that we have. So in some ways, I understand that position, but I don't understand how she came to those conclusions at all. I don't understand why this was a pressing issue to, or a road to go down at this point. Where was the impetus for this? What was the pressing need to have this, what we deem faux pas, mm-hmm. massive faux pas? Well, like, if it's, if it's a conversation, if it's an intellectual exercise, go right ahead. But don't hurt people who are literally suffering in real mm-hmm. life already. And we want to call attention to the piece that was written by Lindsay Gibbs for Think Progress that came out today, mm. where a bill was almost passed in South Dakota that prescribed kids could only participate in sports based on the gender that was, or I should say, the sex that was written on their birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And throughout this process of trying to get this bill passed, some lawmakers quoted from Martina Navratilova in that op-ed that she wrote to then weaponize her words against trans youth. Mm -hmm. Literally quoted this essay. Yeah. And when Martina was made aware of this, she was, you can look at her tweet, she was unable to understand how what she wrote was misinterpreted. And she said it was taken out of context. And that she meant to have this discussion on an elite sporting level. Mm -hmm. But that's not how the world works for trans folks. You know, there are trans women who are trying to compete at an, at an elite level. There are very few, but there are some. What's most immediate for most trans people, especially in this culture, is the daily attacks on their life, be it in the street, in the classroom, at work, at school, right? These folks are just trying literally to get through it. Mm-hmm. And... At every turn, especially in certain parts of the United States, there are lawmakers trying to legislate against them, against who they are, and to demean their lives and imperil their lives. And it, it when somebody is going to out here say a man can decide to be female, take hormones if required by whatever sporting organization, win everything in sight, and then earn a small fortune and then reverse decision paint 
being transgendered as a choice, as something that can be leveraged to gain benefit from varying situations. You are emboldening all these folks who make it their life mission for their own political utility, even if it's not something that they hold as a personal belief. But a, a simple thing as political survival, they're willing to use those words and leverage them for their political survival to the detriment of trans youth and trans people who are just trying to get by, hmm. like who are trying to just survive. Right. And so we see now where Martina's words and words like that have real life consequences and they don't just exist in a, a would-be battle of wit and intellect on some social media website or in some op-ed piece in a newspaper. Like, this stuff is real. Mm-hmm. Again, we say all this with a somewhat diminished now, but still a healthy respect for Martina Navratilova and what she's accomplished in her career. Like, mm-hmm. that is earned. Yeah. But we hope that this is something that will give her pause eventually and, and allow for further introspection and learning on the issue. We don't have to come to the same conclusions. Um, and we've decided not to throw around inflammatory words. To like, call her transphobic like transphobe is not or TERF, which is short for trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I don't want to use that language because, uh, first of all, I think there's a lack of understanding about what those words mean. Um, you know, I don't feel confident that I know what transphobia is enough to call somebody that or that it's my place to call somebody that. I think you can see a through line between there were, you know, there were battles between second wave feminists and third wave or what you might call libertines in the 70s, in the, the Clinton era, like how they approached the Lewinsky affair you saw a lot of radical feminists who came of age in the 70s align with the Christian right on issues like prostitution and pornography. It was total abolition. That was the position. And they gladly joined arms with people like Phyllis Schlafly. (laughs) You know, these incredibly hateful right-wing Christian people who hated us. And so this is, I think, a dynamic you see again with the anti-trans movement against uh, among radical feminists. So I don't think it's useful to malign everyone who feels this way as a transphobe because it's while in some cases it is evil and damaging, it's not that helpful. And we can also make a comparison between folks saying racist things and not necessarily being like a an immovable racist just being ignorant yeah i mean there there are degrees to which people exist within ignorance (laughs) there there is Mm -hmm. and like the intransigence with which we we uh black and white these issues and box people into corners that they that we then say that they cannot come out of that's where the discourse and the dialogue becomes not constructive well that's the problem is that when you call someone a transphobe it puts them in that place where all they can do is defend it it gives you a best picture winner like green book yeah i mean it's where it's like you called me this well i liked it so this is like the where we are Mm. in the trump mindset but it's not even that 
precisely for me it's i just wish we could get to a point where we can acknowledge the weight of the words and how we use them without without just losing track of what we're talking about mm. you know like you know people are going to get defensive about what you call them regardless you can call somebody a racist they're going to get defensive about you saying that what they said was racist because of how, what they feel like that implies for them. But, you know, we should be able to get to a point, hopefully, where to get any true progress made, we have to then grapple with these things and understand the ways in which we make these issues worse. If I say something that's racist, I... I you know, I would like to think I'd be like, well, damn, well, well, what other thing could I have said racist? Why is this racist? You integrate all the ways in which that affects other people and for your first impulse not be to self-protect. Mm. Or say, that's not me. Exactly. Because, you know, in that moment, it could have been you, but it's not a total rep representation of who you are. In the meantime, where are we left not being able to make any progress because people are backed into their corners? Mm. I don't know, man. This stuff is hard. It's not easy. Sometimes you need to call something by its name. Mm -hmm. Like Ryan Harrison. Oh, my God. <laughs> and what is his name? Say his name, bitch. His name. <laughs> um, Ryan Harrison was silent for a little while. Mm -hmm. He had disappeared a little bit. His results fell off. Silent with respect to what? His tennis or the Donald Young incident? Well, just basically the the whole ugliness of who he is. Hmm. I, I mean, I don't know if you can block a podcast, but he has blocked me and blocked anyone who dared criticize him on, on Twitter. I've never added him, ever. I don't do that. I never direct my criticism toward a player or a public figure hmm. unless it's Tommy Lauren. She's a piece of shit. <laughs> well, he did directly engage with me once and oh. like called me some imbecile or something, but I missed it because he did it while I was sleeping. Ugh. And I didn't even know it had happened because he deleted the tweets and it was only until somebody had like mm -hmm. screenshotted them and sent it to me privately that I even knew. This was years ago. Right. I got blocked because somebody snitch tagged me in something else. That's beside the point. Anyway, Ryan Harrison decided to capitalize on the Jussie Smollett disaster, which at this point, I don't even know. I don't know what's going on. The Chicago police have arrested him for fabricating this police report. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to see that play out. We don't even know. I we're don't not even a, know what's going on. We're not opining on that publicly. Right. That's, what he, that's what he was arrested for. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell happened. But Ryan Harrison took this horrible moment... And decided to say Donald Young can relate to fabricating fabricating accusations of racism. Well, that's the implication. That, that second bit. That's exactly the exact what he tweet meant. Tweet was Donald Young can relate. Yes, but you're right. That is what yeah. he meant. I just wanted to be clear. So Ryan has been quiet for a little while about his politics, but he is back to remind you. I mean, he said all he he was given ample room to say everything he wanted to say on. Mm -hmm. Beyond the Baseline podcast. So he, he needn't, sure didn't have to say anything right. else for the rest of last year. He was given a huge platform. He said what he needed to say. Apparently there is more. Mm. I don't know what happened between him and Donald Young. We don't know. The ball boys don't know. My, <laughs> my takeaway from that is people are very quick to believe that about you. 
So maybe you want to do some soul searching about why people are quick to believe it. And it's not that we're evil. On the scale of likely to unlikely of things <laughs> to happen, that doesn't exist on that scale. You know, it was just it's, a, uh, it was a suggestion, a humble suggestion. It's extra scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. <laughs> On that note... On that note, we spent episode 150 alienating more people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, the stew piece smells ready. I think it is. You just mm. have to go make the, the, the dumplings to put in them. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sticking around for 150 episodes, or 100, or 75, or however many you've been around for. New, old, we appreciate you all. We will uh, solicit reviews again, as we always do. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, let the world know, especially on iTunes. That's one of the tangible ways that you can help us. It gets the profile of the show out to more people. When folks go to iTunes and type in tennis podcasts, they'll get the tennis podcast, obviously. But they'll also (laughs) get... That was pretty smart. Pretty (laughs) smart, Brandon. I see what they did there. Uh, they'll also be able to find us more easily because we have a higher profile based on the reviews. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Jonathan at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at the body serve on Twitter and the body serve on Instagram. And uh, we look forward to hearing from y'all. Till next time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. <laughs>